Vanessa Ruiz, and you're listening to Good Acid, a talk show style podcast featuring guests who are shaping the food and drink culture in Paris. Hello, and welcome back to Good Acid, and happy 2024, right? Yes. Um, I haven't posted an episode for a hot minute. I have been actually busier than I thought I would be over the holidays. I had my family come from the States last minute and they came and visited and that was super fun. I ended up hosting a Christmas dinner at my place with my best friend, Ashley of Prune Cab here. And we had some friends come over. That was super fun. Uh, I hosted a dinner and I had a whole cocktail list and we had some wines from her shop. Um, getting back in the swing of things, the weather's been horrible and dreadful because it's January in France. So yeah, but I have so many things listed for the podcast and things that I want to do and things that I want to share and post about and write about. And I'm really excited for 2024. I have a lot of things going on. I'm sure you do too. I feel like everyone is kind of in the same mood about 2024. I think people had kind of a shit 22, 23, you know, last couple years. And I think people are really just kind of like, all right, 2024 really has to serve me because I've kind of had it. I feel like that's like the, the consensus, you know? So that's how I feel about the year. I have, I feel like I have a really good head on my shoulders this year. I'm in a better mindset. I have um, a lot of good things that I want to plan for myself. So yeah. So as you can tell from the title of this podcast, we're going to talk about aperitifs. And this is aperitifs 101. I'm going to start a small series talking about aperitifs and spirits because I'm really passionate about that. I think I wouldn't say more than wine, but definitely at least on the same level. And there's a special guest that I really want to have on the show and they agreed to be on the show. So they're going to tie into this little series about spirits. I love wine and I don't ever want to imply that wine can get boring, but the world of spirits and cocktails is really something that has my heart. And I want to talk about something that I think all of you should know about and it's aperitifs. This conversation will definitely cater more towards French styles and history, but just because it's what I know best and it's what I drink mostly. Um, But this episode is going to be breaking down aperitifs, their history, and some fun facts. First, I want to explain what an aperitif is, and I'm going to read a passage from the book Aperitif by Rebecca Pepler. She's a New York Times writer, journalist, and she explains it much better than I ever could myself. And um, I think if you're someone who's kind of like a cocktail geek, also really into history, it's a really fun little reference book about French aperitifs. And in this book, she says, the word aperitif refers to both the bottles themselves as well as the drinks made with them. Meant to stimulate the appetite before dinner, an aperitif in France is nearly always accompanied by a light snack. Nothing so large that fills you up, but rather just enough for you to want more. The cliches are true. The French are expert in weaving the art of seduction into everyday life. The colloquial form of the word aperitif, l'apéro, is used both as you would aperitif. 
meaning referencing this to a pre-meal appetite-arousing drink, and to denote the switching hour between the day and the night. And in short, l'apéro is so much more than just a simple aperitif and snack before dinner. It ushers in and properly celebrates the night's beginning. Derived from the Latin verb aperir, it's meant to open both the appetite and the evening. And if you're doing it right, also the heart, the mind, and possibly the legs. Aperitifs are woven into daily life across France, and l'apéro is most certainly not limited to, say, 30-somethings looking to unwind with their crew. It is an integral part of the culture, embedded in life from youth onward. Just as French children are welcomed at the table, so too with l'heure de l'aperitif. Many friends I talked to while researching this book offer childhood memories of drinking something special alongside the adults, maybe their first taste of alcohol, whether passed to by them by the hand of a grandparent or a stolen sip. So moving forward with a quick history on aperitifs. Aperitif formulations started out for medicinal purposes, and in the 19th century, malaria was a disease that was very prominent, and they used quinine to prevent contracting it. And quinine is like a very bitter extract that comes from the chinchona bark in South America. And it was the French government, actually, who asked people to create formulations to try and mask its like extreme bitterness into something drinkable for the soldier to take. Eventually, people grew to enjoy its bitter flavor. And when they mixed it with alcohol and botanicals, it became like a staple in society and everyone started drinking it. And if you're curious what quinine is, it's actually in tonic water. So if you've ever had that by itself and you have that very intense bitter flavor, it's quinine. It's definitely that flavor. Aperitifs can kind of be categorized in a few different ways, but the way that I broke them down today is kind of by bittering agent, if you will. Um, I feel like a cl like different classes of aperitifs are can be categorized by their what they they were bittered. No, what's the verb for? Yeah, what they were what bitter that they were infused with? Because you have like quinine, you have um, gentian, you have wormwood. And so I kind of categorized the classic aperitifs that way. And this is by no means an exhaustive list of every single aperitif, but definitely the classics and the basics that you should know. And if you would like to uh, start building your bar cart, you know, this is like kind of like what you should have. So starting with quinquina aperitifs, you have Dubonnet. And I'm pretty sure you haven't heard of this one because it's super old school. I don't even know if it exists in the US and it's super super old school here in France. And so I don't really see many people drinking about it, but I do want to mention Dubonnet quickly because it was technically one of the first true quinine based aperitifs, but it's not easy to find because like I said, it's like super old school. It was created in 1846 by a Parisian chemist who was of course trying to make a palatable drink to combat malaria. And it's basically a fortified wine base that's infused with ingredients like cinnamon, citrus, chamomile, coffee, and chinchona bark. And it became this like high society drink of royal status. And it's said that Queen Elizabeth II drank cocktails a day of it mixed with gin. And after that, you have Lilette, which is probably the one that you might know more of. And I actually saw it in L.A. in um, at Highland Park Wine. Uh, so, yeah, maybe people are starting to drink it a little bit more. But it's also an aromatized and fortified aperitif wine just like vermouth, but it differs in a few ways, but mostly that its bittering agent is quinine and not wormwood. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But it comes from Bordeaux, 
and it starts with a combination of fruits, peels, and barks, and each ingredient is individually macerated into the brandy and then blended together with wine. And it's also put into large French oak barrels to age for two to four months. And I feel like the most popular pop culture reference to the Lilette would be James Bond's Vesper Martini. If you ever watched the movie, if you're into a Vesper Martini, Lilette replaces the vermouth in this recipe. Just fun fact. So moving on to aperitif wines. You, of course, have vermouth. And if you don't know, vermouth is a fortified, aromatized aperitif wine. And this basically means that a neutral spirit is in the wine base and then it is infused with all kinds of botanicals. Of course, every brand has their own infusion, their own recipe, and it's always a secret. The types of wines, the spirit base, the maceration time, they all change from producer to producer. So if you taste a vermouth and you really like it honestly go down the rabbit hole and if you can start purchasing different kinds of vermouths and you'll see how different and fun they all are and you'll see what kinds of vermouths uh, play better with other kinds of spirits and uh, cocktail recipes vermouth is really fun and really versatile and just delicious i do want to note that true vermouth especially per EU laws, it has to contain wormwood and the ABV, the alcohol by volume, has to be between 14.5 to 22%. You might be familiar with Martini, not the cocktail, but the brand Martini. Um, it's kind of like Martini Rouge, Martini Blanc. It's a big bottle. It's not expensive. I'm sure you could find it at your local liquor store, like not even like the nice liquor stores, but it's technically not vermouth, but we definitely use it for cocktails. I mean, it probably you've probably used it for a Negroni. You've probably used the white version for a martini. But it currently sits at 14% alcohol. So because of that, in the EU, it is not considered a vermouth. Just if you were curious to know. Traditionally, though, all vermouths, red included, were made with a white wine base that was then altered to get its deep red color. But today, of course, especially with artisanal producers, they are now using true red wine as its base. And there are essentially three kinds. You have sweet, dry, and blanc. It's originally from northern Italy in the late 1700s, and sweet vermouth was the first uh, made there from Antonio Bendetto Carpano. You may have heard of Camparno Vermouth, very famous. And in the early 1800s, just about 30 years later, Joseph Noyly created the first dry formula, and that's uh, the French version, and you might have heard of Noyly Pratt, the vermouth. You also have Vermouth Dolan, and they take credit for creating Blanc Vermouth in the late 1800s. It's kind of hard to tell you what's sweetest to most dry, but because it's generalizing and now there's so many producers that are making their own versions of vermouth and it's very different. But really, sweet vermouth, red vermouth is supposed to be the sweetest. And then you have blanc vermouth, which is white vermouth, but it's a little bit sweet. And then dry vermouth is also white, but it's drier than blanc, if that makes sense. It was, of course, originally formulated to be a medicinal tonic. 
And the way that you would drink vermouth is pretty much endless, but some of the more artisanal and botanical forward producers are amazing on their own with a little like ice cube and citrus peel. But the classics are best for some of like our favorite cocktails. Like once again, a Manhattan, a Martini, a Negroni, that's where you would know vermouth the best. Moving on to gentian-based aperitifs. So gentian root is an herb that has been historically used as a digestive aid and grows in the mountains of France and Switzerland and a few other places, but definitely mainly there. And some aperitifs with gentian root as an ingredient you might know are Suze, Amer Picon, Salers, Campari, and Angostura bitters. If I could like promote one aperitif that I want everyone to know and like, it's Suze. And I feel like there's some kind of levels to aperitifs from like beginner to more advanced taste palettes, especially if you didn't grow up with a family regularly drinking these types of alcohol. And Suze for me is kind of on the advanced level, to be honest. It's very herbaceous, it's bittersweet, and it's like this beautiful bright yellow kind of saffron color. And if you really like Campari and you're interested in trying something equally strong in flavor with some nice bitterness, I'd really encourage you to try Suze. Suze uses a grain alcohol as its base and macerates gentian roots for at least a year before getting infused with its specific blend of botanicals. And I believe it's about 15% ABV, which is really nice because for how low alcohol it is, it has so much flavor and complexity, and it's a really great tool to have in your bar for low ABV cocktails. It was actually made in 1885 in the southeastern suburbs of Paris, and eventually uh, Pernod Ricard bought it. And over time, the formula has been modernized to be less bitter, which is wild because if you try it today, I can't imagine how bitter the original formula was. Some of the true old school drinkers of Suze have it neat or over ice, which is like way too hardcore even for me. But I really love it with tonic and a little bit of lemon juice. And everyone's go-to summer drink was like the Aperol Spritz. But I really think Suze deserves some love and it should be the ultimate summer drink. Okay, the next aperitif I'm about to speak about is probably going to confuse some people. And they're going to be like, why are you talking about this as an aperitif? Because honestly, it's something that I could spend an entire podcast episode or even like a podcast show talking about. But it's like definitely, definitely something that I want you to start drinking and trying and getting to know. And that is Sherry. This aperitif series is really about me introducing people into the world of aperitifs and different spirits that you might not be familiar with. And that's why I'm putting Sherry here. It comes from southern Spain, and it's actually named after the town of Jerez de la Frontera. And sherry is absolutely not a one-size-fits-all kind of a thing, and it's an entire spectrum of styles from bone dry to yeasty, nutty, sweet, dark, light. And there's so many to try. It's truly endless, like wine. But I'm just going to give you a quick breakdown of what it is. If you're down to try like a lighter, drier style of sherry, ask for a fino or a manzanilla. And these are fortified to around 18% ABV and they're aged for at least two years under a layer of yeast or floor. As a fino ages longer and the yeast covering breaks up and exposes the wine to air, it becomes an amontillado. And it's deeper in flavor, it starts to get an amber color. I mean, like, dare I say it's like orange wine? Then that amontillado keeps aging in barrel with exposure to oxygen and you have palo cortado. 
You also have another style called Oloroso that never begins with the yeast covering the floor, but rather they're fortified to like 17% ABV and it gets exposed to oxygen from day one. And this is like the richest and darkest in color out of the dry styles of sherry. And if you're into classic cocktails, sherry will be in like the Adonis, the bamboo. But if you love wine, you honestly will love to dive into the world of sherry and learning about it and trying the different styles, especially if you love the whole spectrum of wine, especially natural wine. Like if you're into orange wines and lighter reds, like things that are have not so conventional flavor profiles, you will absolutely love sherry. Um, so moving on, you have Pinot de Charente, which I have heard has become super trendy in New York City recently. And like all of the cool, I'm putting like quotation marks up, all of the cool bars have Pinot de Charente, which is really great because that's not a thing here in Paris. I mean, it's a thing in France, of course, but it's not like the thing that you're going to be seeing at all of the cool bars here. And I love Pinot de Charente, so I think everyone should be drinking that. It's a very traditional French aperitif, and it's basically cognac-based, and it comes from where? Cognac. It, cognac is also a place, you know, just like champagne. And it's light, it's a little fruity, it's a little sweet. It's basically cognac that has been aged for at least a year, mixed with the unfermented grape must and juice. And so if you're into brandy or cognac, but feel like that's way too strong to drink for a certain occasion, Pinot de Charente is totally up your alley. Okay, next is pastis, and maybe you've heard of pastis, or maybe you haven't, but it's, I can't talk about it. I mean, it's like the ultimate aperitif, you know? It's like the icon of aperitifs here in French culture. It basically comes from the South, and it's really like the one aperitif, if I have to just pick one in France to talk about, that's the ultimate French aperitif, aperitif culture, it is literally pastis. It first started happening in the early 1900s after absinthe was banned and it's basically an anise-based liqueur that is infused with other similar flavors like fennel, licorice, and coriander. And if you're Colombian, it's kind of like aguardiente and if you're in Greece, they have ouzo. But if you ever come to France in the warm months and you sit on a terrace and you order a pastis, you will receive it in a tall Collins glass with about two to three ounces of pastis and a separate water glass to mix to your liking. And if you're lucky, a single ice cube. But to be fair, you don't want to drink besties too cold, even if it's like super hot out, because it's really, really quite perfect with just like the one or two cubes. And it's you could drink it endlessly. It's so low in alcohol. It's just delicious. It's refreshing. It's like the best. Okay, so now if I don't mention these aperitifs, it's like, kind of crazy, because even though this is like a French aperitifs episode, I have to mention Campari and Aperol. They're of course Italian, but I have to mention them because Aperol Spritz had the most insane moment in like 2022 or 2023, right? But basically, just to simplify it a bit, Campari and Aperol are pretty similar in the sense that they are red-hued, orange-flavored Italian aperitivos, and you'll most likely know Campari from a Negroni and the Aperol from the Spritz. Fun fact, Campari was created first in the late 1800s and Aperol came shortly after, around 1919. But some differences between the two. So Campari sits at around 25% ABV 
and Aperol is at 12.5. Uh, Aperol is more orange while Campari is like deeper red hued and Campari is also considerably more bitter in taste. And if you think Campari is too bitter, but Aperol is too sweet, I would try to find another Italian aperitivo called Select. I think on the bitterness sweetness scale, it sits right in between the two and it's just another fun aperitif, red aperitif that you could try. The last aperitif category that I want to speak to you about are liqueurs. And um, okay, liqueurs are mostly drunk after meals as a digestif, but there are a few classic liqueurs that are definitely in the aperitif world and I want to quickly mention them. But just to explain what it is, it's essentially a sweetened spirit. So like you can take a neutral grain alcohol, gin, brandy, whatever, and use it as the base to infuse any kind of fruit or plant for flavor and then you add sugar to sweeten it. So if you're like a cocktail geek, you might have heard of the word cordial. That's interchangeable with liqueur. And some of the most well-known liqueurs that you might know are Chambord, the raspberry liqueur, Chartreuse, Grand Marnier, Cointreau, and like Kahlua, for example. But two very classic liqueurs in French aperitifs are Crème de Cassis and Saint Germain. Crème de Cassis is a deep red liqueur made from black currants and it has the name crème because of its sugar content. So if you ever see crème or crème, you know, whatever, used for a liqueur, it's just know that it's even sweeter than its counterpart. Crème de Cassis is most commonly served as a kir, K-I-R. So again, if you ever come to France, you can go to a cafe, terrasse, you order a kir, kir. It'll be basically dry white wine served with a half an ounce or so of creme de cassis. And it's so delicious and so fruity and like super quaffable. And but better yet, if you're feeling fancy, you order a Kier Royale, a Kier Royale, which is the liqueur served with champagne. Like honestly, it doesn't get better than that. The second liqueur that I do want to mention is Saint Germain, which is personally my favorite. It's an elderflower liqueur in this beautiful like art deco bottle and it's a little pricey but whenever you need saint germain in something it's always just a tiny amount so the bottle lasts forever my two favorite ways to have this are either with champagne so kind of like a Kier royale but the ultimate best way is a saint germain spritz yes people you heard that correctly Kind of like the Aperol Spritz, but with Saint Germain. I mean, it's like beyond delicious and refreshing. And if you love floral notes, then this is definitely up your alley. So that concludes this episode. I didn't want to keep it too long. I didn't want to talk about aperitifs for an hour straight. I really wanted to keep this short and fun and very top line so that we can continue talking about aperitifs in the next episode. And eventually with my guests, we're gonna deep dive into something that's really, really fun. And I'm sure that you guys will be really curious about. So thank you so much for listening to this little fun episode. I hope that you liked it. Honestly, please, if you have any feedback or suggestions or if there's something that you wanna hear me speak about or a topic that you want me to research on, honestly, please DM me or email me. I loved hearing from you. There are a few people who have reached out. And it's so cool to see people listening to this episode or rather this podcast. So thank you so much again. I hope you have a lovely day and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.